Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and I decided to break that series up just for a week here um, so that we could focus a little bit more on the beginnings of Jesus' ministry and we could uh, celebrate uh, his early ministry as our Lord and Savior. Uh, And so I want to look at the beginning of John's gospel with you. As we come to uh, John's gospel in the first chapter, uh, the beloved disciple, who is the author of this book, he unfolds events that occur during the first week of the earthly ministry, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And an alert reader of chapter 1 would be able to pick this up because you can see in your Bible that there is sequence going from day to day to day in this first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So that in the last three paragraphs of John chapter 1, for instance, they all start out the same way. Okay, so if you look in your Bible at verse 29, it says the next day. And then you look at verse 35, the, the next paragraph says the next day. And then you look at verse 43, the next day. And so uh, this is pretty clear what the beloved disciples doing. He's narrating, he's telling us what happens in Jesus' first week of earthly ministry. Uh, For our reflection today, we're not going to look at all six or seven of these days in the first week. We're just going to look at the first two days. The first day takes from verse uh, 19 down to verse 28. And the second day, day two, will be verses 29 through 34. And uh, these two days are held together. I just didn't choose two days because I've only got 25 or 30 minutes. Uh, They're held together because... Within these two days, you have the testimony of an ancient prophet by the name of John the Baptist. So today we're going to hear John the Baptist's ministry right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And uh, these verses are held together not only by the mention of John, but by his witness or testimony. So if you look at John 1 and verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. And then you look at the end of day two, verse 32, and John bore witness. That could be translated, he testified. Or the end of verse 30, or actually the beginning of verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness. I've testified. So in both noun and verb form, this section is held together by the testimony of John the Baptist, his witness. And so today we're going to learn what John the Baptist thought about Jesus right as Jesus' ministry was starting. Now, before we look at this in close detail, I want to ask you a question. I want you to do an exercise for me, okay? I want you to think about something. Every person in the room or in the overflow, wherever you're at, think about this question. How many Christmases have you enjoyed since you have become a follower of Jesus Christ? So think about how many Christmases have you uh, celebrated in your life since you believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, and you repented of your sin, how many has it been for you? So I want you all to do the math, because I'm going to ask you a question about it. So do the math. I know it's hard. It's 11, though. It shouldn't be that bad. That was harder for the 9 o'clock group, I think. Um, how many Christmases? So some of you, you'll have to do, like, long math, right? Like, carry the 9 over to the next category, or... You need a calculator, you got on your phone, you can pull your phone out, figure it out. Okay, so how many of you have celebrated, let's say, at least five Christmases 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you raise your hand? Proudly raise it up there. Okay, all right, so pretty good. A lot of hands. Okay, now we're going to up the bar. How many of you would say I've celebrated at least 20 Christmases since being a follower of Jesus Christ? Okay, keep your hands up. How many, this is where we're going to eliminate some, how many would say at least 50? 50, look around. Okay, all right, we've got some. We had some in the first service too. Okay, you can put your hands down. Is there anyone in the room that say, you know, I'm looking forward to celebrating my first Christmas as a follower of Jesus Christ, having believed in him this year? Would you raise your hand? Like that. We had some in the first service. It was joyous. Uh, I did the math, and I think this is going to be my 39th Christmas um, as a follower of Jesus Christ, having believed in him and repented of my sin. Well, regardless of how many times it's been for you, whether it's been one year or 70, I should probably ask, anyone over 70 Christmases? I talked to someone today, had 69 in the morning service. Anyone, can anyone beat that? Okay, we won't embarrass you. You probably wouldn't raise your hand now at this point anyway. Um, uh, regardless of how many it's been for you, I think this sermon is for you. Today we're going to consider how John the Baptist understood Jesus, and we're going to ask God to deepen our appreciation for the work of Jesus Christ in his birth and earthly ministry. And today, you are going to have to decide whether you are going to pay attention to the testimony of John the Baptist. And I would suggest that it would be very important for you to do so, because the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus is not just his testimony, but he tells us in this text that his testimony is from God. This is what God thinks about Jesus. And you can see that very clearly in a place like verse 33. Look down in your Bible at verse 33. Uh, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that's God, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's testimony comes from God. His testimony about Jesus is the testimony of God. So if you reject the testimony of this prophet, you reject the testimony of God concerning his son. So we need to pay attention. John's perspective comes out in the first two days. I want to look at the first day, day one of his public ministry. It's verses 19 through 28. So look down there in your Bible. Verse 19 says, And this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, <coughs> across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So we're going to look at this first day. 
On the first day of the first week of Jesus' ministry, some men from the Jews came down to confront John the Baptist. Now, the term the Jews in the Gospel of John is not normally referring to the Jewish people or the Israelite people. Normally in this Gospel, when you come across his words, the Jews, it's used in reference to the religious leaders or authorities of the Jewish people. And so, uh, the beloved disciple here has a particular group that's coming down from the religious establishment, perhaps in Jerusalem, and they're on a quest to uncover who this prophet was. And so they ask, who are you? <clears throat> and that leads to a discussion, a very brief discussion, kind of a back and forth, between uh, John the baptizer and these religious elite about who John was not. And we find out he was not the Messiah, he was not Elijah, and he was not the prophet. And so I want to look at each one of those with you just very briefly here for a moment. First, he's not the Messiah. Okay, this was a time in Jewish history when there was a lot of speculation about the coming of the Messiah. In the last several hundred years before this, there were a lot of people who came and said they were the Messiah, made claims, but they, those people all came and went. Okay, but during this time, the Jewish people, there would be a lot of speculation. They'd be curious whether this prophet, John the Baptist, was the Messiah. His answer here, though, is really clear. He says, I am not the Christ. And so they ask him another question. They say, are you then Elijah? Now, why do you think they would ask whether he was Elijah? Any thoughts about that? Think in your mind. Why would they go from Messiah to Elijah? And I want to suggest maybe a few reasons. Okay, first of all, what do we know about Elijah in the Old Testament? We know Elijah was a prophet, but one of the things that sticks out is that Elijah did not die. Okay, if you were here in our Genesis series a few weeks ago, we looked at the man by the name of Enoch, and Enoch walked with God, and the text says, and he was not. Later on in the book of Hebrews, we find out that Enoch didn't die. Okay, he was translated to heaven. He was raptured to heaven without dying. And when we were going through that series in Genesis, in 2 Kings chapter 2, I pointed out what the text says about Elijah. Elijah as well was translated to heaven. He didn't die, but he went up to God in a fiery chariot. Sounds like a pretty cool way to go, huh? Go to heaven. Better than uh, any death, right? Elijah didn't die. And so that idea, combined with a promise, a prophecy in the Old Testament Scripture, I think led some of the Jewish people to think maybe John the Baptist is Elijah. And uh, here, uh, portrayed for you on the screen, are the last two verses of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And I want you to hear this prophecy, this promise about Elijah says, verse 5, Behold, this is uh, the Lord of hosts is speaking. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Jewish people were looking for a reappearance of Elijah to turn the people's hearts to one another, to turn their heart to God. And so 
that could be one of the reasons as well they were looking for the prophet Elijah. I think I would add to this one other concept, and that is the appearance of John the Baptist. Do you know what John the Baptist looked like? What, well, we don't know what his face looked like, but do you know what he looked like? Do you know what he wore? What kind of clothing? You can say it. I want to make sure you stay awake at this 11 o'clock service. Yeah, he had a, a, a belt around his waist, and he wore hair, a garment of hair. That's how the ESV translates it. It's an interesting phrase. Now, <clears throat> this verse is actually about the appearance of Elijah in 2 Kings 1 and verse 8. It says, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, in the New Testament, we learn about the appearance of John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1, verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Because he put this together, hair, wearing garment of hair, and a belt of leather around his waist. So, <clears throat> I think many people would look at the physical appearance of John the Baptist, if they're familiar with the Old Testament Scripture, and they'd say, hey, this might be Elijah. Now, what was John's answer to that? Are you Elijah? I am not. That's what he says. I am not. That's what it says right here. He did not see himself as the prophet Elijah. Okay, now, later on in the Gospels, Jesus says he's a prophet like Elijah and that they've done some things to him. But I think at this point, in John the Baptist's earthly ministry, he does not see himself as John the Baptist or he doesn't care because he's not concerned to answer questions about himself. His identity isn't what matters. That's not what his witness is about. Okay, are you the Messiah? I am not. Are you Elijah? I am not. Then finally, they ask him this last question. Are you the, the prophet? I think here they're referring to another text in the Old Testament where God promises to send a prophet like Moses to help the people of Israel. But John, John's answer here gets even shorter. No. <laughs> Uh, if you saw this in the original, you would just see this shortness. And you can see it in your, most English Bibles that they captured as well. Are you Messiah? I am not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. It's kind of like the conversation you have with your spouse as they're leaving the house. Are you going to the store? No, I am not going to the store. Are you going to town? I am not. Are you going to uh, work? No. Okay, just get shorter. I think that the shortness, although they get shorter in length, I think each answer gets stronger in force. Stronger in force. And so the tension begins to rise here, and it begs for the real answer to the question. You're with your spouse. It's like, well, where are you going? Am I just supposed to, like, keep naming things? Just tell me where you're going. This delegation says, What's, what are you then? And he answers this way. He does not uh, identify himself with any one person or a, a specific personal identity. He simply says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice that was talked about in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. And we could go back there and look at that, but for the sake of time, I won't. I think the point that he's making here is something like this. I'm nothing special. I'm a voice that was talked about in the Old Testament Scripture. But I do think we can draw some ap quick applications before we move on here, and that, that is, John in humility says, I'm just a voice, a witness, to prepare the way for the Lord. How about you? Are you a voice 
Are you a voice preparing the way for Jesus? Will you be a voice this Christmas season telling family and friends about who Jesus is? Regardless of whether you've experienced one Christmas or 70 as a follower of Jesus Christ, this Christmas can be one where you will be a voice for Jesus Christ. Now, with such a simple identity here in day one, he's not a significant prophet in his perspective. The delegation asks then, then why are you baptizing? If you're like none of these people, why are you baptizing? And to this, John explains that he is simply baptizing people with water. It's just water. And he explains that a more significant person is hidden among them who will do greater things than him. I see it like this. I think John, at this point, is basically saying like this, saying something like this. uh, Stop asking me questions about me. Right? It's not about me. You say, are you? And his answer is, no, no, no. It's just water. I'm just baptizing with water. And the whole purpose of my baptism, will tell us later, I'm baptizing so that the greater one will be revealed. We'll see that on day two when Jesus shows up on the scene. So John is simply a humble voice who is not even worthy, the text says, to touch. I just love the text of Scripture. Not even worthy to touch. It's not the sandal. It's a strap on the sandal of this hidden greater one. So on day number one, we have a humble voice and a hidden Messiah that leads to day number two, verses 29 through 34. Look there with me to see. We're going to see what happens when this humble voice meets the Messiah. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after he After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Here's the purpose, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness, I testify, that this one is the Son of God. In this short little narrative of day two, we're not told a lot, but boy, we are given a lot about the identity of Jesus Christ. There's a lot that I could focus here on in this little paragraph. I could talk about the fact that John says that this one is, although he's younger physically than me, he's been around a lot longer. Okay, but I I won't. I would just say, if you want to learn about that, read the first 18 verses. This is the Word that was in the beginning. The living Word from the beginning. I could also spend some time talking about the fact, you know, how John describes him as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I, I think the point there is 
this one who comes, this Jesus, will be one who gives his followers the Holy Spirit of God. But for the sake of time, I just want to look at the first description or title he gives of Jesus and the last one in this text as a Christmas meditation for us. Remember, this is the testimony not only of John the baptizer, but of God regarding a son. And so look with me at the first one, verse 29. We'll, we'll look at that again. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here the first title he gives to Jesus is the Lamb of God. This is an, a very important moment. Okay, so you, you've got this like fiery prophetic voice who sees Jesus publicly here the first time recognizing who he is and his first words are, Behold the Lamb of God. So I want to look at that title for a moment. I think that title is very important in Scripture. Now let me point out just two main things about that title, Lamb of God. The first thing I point out about this is that that phrase, it comes from four words in the original, the Lamb of God, just like English, the Lamb of God. And this is one of only two times in the entire Bible where you see that phrase, the Lamb of God. The other time is down in verse 36. It's down in verse 36. And both times, it comes from the mouth of the baptizer, the Baptist, John, the Lamb of God. So <coughs> this phrase is unique to the prophetic voice of the Baptist. Now, it's a bit mysterious, but, but it leaves us with the question, why would, why would John call Jesus this? This seems to be something that God leads him to say for the first time and only time. Why would he do this? Call him the Lamb of God. And I think to answer that, I think one of the things that you'd have to do is just be familiar with your Old Testament Bible. Although the phrase Lamb of God is not used in the Old Testament, we do know that the word Lamb is used over and over and over again in your Old Testament. So, for instance, I was counting this week and noticed that it's used 89 times in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers alone in the Pentateuch. Eighty-nine times you will come across the word lamb in singular or lambs, plural. Okay, now when we come across it in the Old Testament, normally it's used as a reference to a sacrificial animal that is slain to atone for or to cleanse people in their sin. Okay, so as I was going through those first three books, for instance, uh, lambs were offered by the Israelites in worship every morning and every evening in their burnt offerings. Lambs were offered on all seven days of the Passover. Lambs were offered on the Feast of Weeks. Lambs, of course, were offered on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And lambs are offered during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you've got this, like, strand of, okay, lamb means sacrificial victim for sins. And that kind of, you trace that through the, I should do it this way, you trace that through the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, and you come to this very important text about a lamb. Remember Isaiah 53? Okay, and I've got a portion of this here just to remind you of this as well. Isaiah 53, remember this text? Powerful text. And 
this text is telling us, you know, you got all these sacrificial lambs, but there's coming a lamb who is going to be sacrificed for the sins of people. Okay, so Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, has laid on him, this lamb, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, the text says, that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so from these Old Testament scriptures, I I, I would say it seems to me that God leads John the Baptist to call Jesus the Lamb of God to kind of pick up all of these themes from the Old Testament, this Old Testament imagery about an innocent, defenseless sacrifice that would make atonement and cleanse the sins of the people. So that's the first point I would give to you. I think this is a unique phrase to John the Baptist, Lamb of God, but it comes out of his Bible. It's Old Testament scripture. Now I would add to this a second idea, and that is that the imagery of a lamb becomes a prominent one in the New Testament for a biblical author, one biblical author. And that biblical author is the beloved disciple. So the word lamb, although lamb of God is not used again in the New Testament, the word lamb is used, let me get this right, 34 times in the New Testament. 32 of those are in the writings of John. 32 out of 34. The only other times you see it is once Philip in Acts 9 calls Jesus the lamb, and once Peter in 1 Peter calls Jesus the lamb. So 32 times it comes from John, the writer of the Gospel of John. It's found two times here in this phrase from John the Baptist, a different John. It's his testimony. The writer of the Gospel of John records it here, the beloved disciple, two times here, but then 29 times in an entirely different book of the New Testament. Okay, so think about this. What books did the beloved disciple write? Got the Gospel of John. He wrote five. Okay? Gospel of John. Throw out another one. First John. John. Okay, and that helps us because now we're going to get two more. First John. Second John. Fourth John. No, third John. Okay, third John. And then what's the last book he writes? The book of Revelation. And so, 29 times of his 32 uses, two of them are right here, all but one other occurrence in John's writing of the concept or one of the words for lamb is found in the book of Revelation. Revelation, especially between uh, chapters 5 and 19. And I think that what we're beginning to see in our Bibles is there's like a trajectory with the word lamb and how it's used. It's used in the Old Testament of these innocent lambs that be sacrificed for sins. It's used in the Gospels of the sacrifice, Jesus, be offered. But then Revelation adds something to it. So I'm going to have you turn back to Revelation for a moment. So go back to Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at some other scriptures here as we make sense of this. So how is it used in Revelation? Well, the first time... I would just say this. It's used in Revelation of an end time, the end time lamb, Jesus, who is victorious. That's what I add to this. 
like doing a biblical theology of lamb. Okay, Old Testament sacrifices, gospel, there's one sacrifice, the lamb of God who take away the sins of the world, and Revelation adds, and he's been victorious. Okay, so I just want to show you this in a few texts. Look at Revelation 5 and verse 5. Okay, this scene of the heavenly throne room of God. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's victorious. This is what Revelation's adding here. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6. And behold, or and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world, or all the earth. This end-time lamb of God comes as a lion out of the tribe of Judah, the Old Testament tribe of Judah. He's standing in heaven near the throne room of God. He's been previously slain. He's victorious. The text says he has conquered. And now he has seven horns and seven eyes, a metaphor, I think, uh, as being signs of strength. This end-time lamb has strength. We continue to read in the same text, go down to verses 8 through 10 to see that he's worthy of worship. Verse 8, and, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. Here this end time lamb is, worth, is a worthy object of worship. Because he has redeemed people from every race and language group so that they can worship the one who sits on the throne. We could continue to read as you go throughout the book of Revelation. You could find those 29 occurrences over and over again. I mean, this is the primary way that John describes Jesus in the end times. He's the Lamb who has been victorious. We could read, for instance, in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, when it says that the saints, the martyred saints, their garments are made white by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. Later on, that believers are victorious over Satan by the blood of the Lamb. We could read uh, other things about this Lamb that... Uh, he is our shepherd. He leads us. We could read in Revelation that this lamb has a book of life. The lamb's book of life that you really want to be in because if your name's not written in that book, you will not uh, spend eternity in heaven with Christ, with Jesus. We read as well that this lamb has a father. One of these texts in Revelation, I just came across it this, this week, this lamb has a father and his father is God. We read in these end times prophecies, like in Revelation 17. Why don't you turn there? I'll show you one more. Revelation 17, verse 14. We, we learn that this lamb is not weak or defeated. Now, this lamb is so strong, he is able to defeat a coalition of forces that include the great beast of the tribulation period and human kings that he has collected to wage war against the lamb. Look at 
Revelation 17, verse 14. The word lamb is used twice here. They, the great beast, these kings, will make war on the lamb. And the lamb will conquer. You see that word connected with the lamb through the book of Revelation often. The lamb conquers. The lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This end time lamb is not weak. No, he defeats the beast of the tribulation period because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, you can see that this lamb has a marriage arranged. Marriage supper, he has a bride, the church, and this church will be able to enjoy her groom forever and ever. And finally, in the very last chapter, you, you could learn this about the lamb. This end time lamb has a throne in the new heaven and the new earth with his father, where there'll be worship forever and ever. And so this Christmas season, I invite you to think about how the baptizer identified Jesus. He is the lamb, of, he's God's lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. And I want you to think about the trajectory, what the scripture says about the lamb, about lamb. Old Testament, many sins, many lambs. Gospels, God's lamb, who takes away sin, my sin, your sin, takes away, gone, by his death and resurrection. And now, Revelation adds, he stands in heaven, in power, because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is worthy of worship, and he will one day soon reign with his father above. This is the Lamb of God. But there's one more title, and I, I just have about three minutes left, so I can do this pretty quickly, trust me. One more title I want you to look. So go back to John chapter 1. Uh, this will take me about five minutes max. John chapter 1. Okay, and I want to see the last title that the baptizer gives to Jesus. Look, look again at verse 32. It says, And John bore witness, uh, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this one is, here's the title, the Son of God. Now, this final title is very important as well. John the baptizer gives this to Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just a human being, but what you also need to know is he's the Son of God. This is a statement about his identity, his being. He is deity. He is God the Son. And it is appropriate for John the Baptist to point this out about Jesus, to be the first person, the first witness to point it out, because throughout the rest of the gospel, the beloved disciple will want to point this out in every section. 
Okay, so throughout the rest of John's gospel, this, I think, son of God becomes one of the primary ways he refers to Jesus. The word son of God are used 12 times in the gospel of John, and it's always used of, of Jesus. And it's used here of John the Baptist's testimony. Right after this, there's one of the first disciples of Jesus. His name is Nathaniel. What does he say about Jesus? You, you are the son of God. <laughs> but every section of this book, I, I divide the gospel of John up into two primary sections, two halves. The first half is John 1 through 12. And in John 1 through 12, what you basically have after the prologue here, you have a section of sign miracles. There are seven miracles that John records, and he calls them signs. They're not just miracles, because they're signs to point you to more than the miracle itself, but to point you to the person doing the miracle or performing the miracle. John wants to show you something about the miracle worker. And the way he ends his first section is in John 11, the last sign. So turn over there in your Bible, just, just quickly, to John chapter 11. I want to show you that, that his call for the reader to believe on the Son of God becomes very pointed here. John chapter 11. I want to show you that at the beginning of this seventh sign miracle, you have a reference to the Son of God. Look at John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this does not lead to death. Now pay attention here. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, so there are like some very prominent things here. Son of God... God glorified to this is a claim to deity for the Son of God. But he's saying you know, Lazarus' life and death is for God's glory. It's for the glory of the Son of God. And you know, perhaps the rest of this story, you know that Jesus delays a little bit and Lazarus dies. You remember Thomas' testament? I think he's being skeptical. He says, we're going to go down there and die too. You remember that Martha's overwhelmed, and then Martha comes running to Jesus when he finally comes. You remember this part of the story? Look in your Bible at verse 20. It says, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but, Jesus, uh, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27, notice. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the what? Still there? I know I haven't got two minutes, but I want to use them. Son of God, who is coming into the world. See, this whole last sign miracle is framed by references to Son of God. The beloved disciple in this gospel, he wants you to believe something. He wants you to believe that Jesus is deity, that he comes from God. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, not just a human being. He's God. Comes from him. 
And in the second half of this gospel, I wish I had time to show you the other references to Son of God in this book. I, I just will tell you, the second half comes to a rushing close, too, in John chapter 20. So turn there in my last minute. John 20, the climax to the whole book. Remember the story of Jesus and Thomas? We're going to see Son of God here, too. Verse 24 of John 20. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Remember, Jesus died. He rose again. He appears, but Thomas isn't there. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Thomas came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Or, I mean, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said, verse 27, to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and thrust it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. I think Thomas believes. Jesus, I think Thomas is converted right here. You are my Lord. You are my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. John wrote these things down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. You see, John's clear desire is for everyone to believe this. Every person who's ever read his book or heard someone proclaiming his book, John's desire is for you to believe that Jesus is God the Son. Jesus of Nazareth is not just a human being. He's a divine being. He is Son of God. So John writes two large New Testament books that talk about Jesus. Revelation is about God's Lamb. The Gospel of John is about God's Son. Won't you meditate on these two grand themes this Christmas? Won't you believe? Perhaps there are some of you here today who have never believed on the name of the Son of God to be delivered from your sins. Won't you believe this Christmas? Won't you tell others? Won't you be a voice preparing the way for the Lord? Christmas is a time to rejoice in God's Lamb and God's Son. Our baby Jesus came to earth to take away the sins of the world. Let's rejoice and pray together. Father, I thank you for this. I pray that you would bless our final song. Lord, I would pray for all of us that you would give us a significant Christmas where we take moments to recall these two pictures, lamb and son. But perhaps there are some here who have uh, enjoyed as many Christmases as I have, 39, as a believer in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would not grow complacent, but that the testimony of John the Baptist 
would encourage us to think about the true meaning and significance of, Christian, uh, of Christmas. This, this one is your lamb. This one is your son. And for anyone here today, Lord, who uh, has never believed in Jesus, never repented their sins, I pray that they would do that now. I pray that now, quietly, seated at their, sitting at their seat, they would pray to you in their own soul and proclaim to you, you've been too much for them. You're too good to them. You love them by sending your son to die on the cross for their sins. And that you, through your power, raised them from the dead so that they could be delivered. Lord, I pray that they would believe in you, believe in the son, believe in the lamb that's slain for the sins of the world. And Lord, we pray that you would allow each one of us as followers of yours to be a voice for you this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.